Welcome to Neocast. Join our experts each week as we discuss strategies and solutions for your businesses in managed IT, cybersecurity, government contracting, and much, much more. Sharing is caring, and we've got top-shelf advice to help you navigate today's biggest challenges. Let's get to it. Hello, and welcome back to Neocast podcast. This season, GovCon rules, season number two, we are going deep on FAR part nine contracting qualifications and how contractors should handle cybersecurity compliance. Hopefully you joined us for episode one where we really went deep on what is the FAR part nine. And then last week we talked about our second episode focusing on the cybersecurity compliance specifically and how it's important under FAR part nine. And for this week, we welcome back our resident expert, partner at Holland and Knight, Eric Crucius. Thank you so much for joining us. And we will be reviewing false claims and other risks of non-compliance. So I think this is specifically very important for our listening audience because this is where we all of a sudden start to know what the, the consequences are if we're not paying attention to these new rulings and these new certifications that we need to be thinking about. So welcome back to the show, Eric. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, let's jump right in and let's talk about false claims. And um, I know we were going to sort of talk about what is the False Claims Act, but again, just to be sure that there's no new listeners out there getting a little bit confused, can you talk to us a little bit about what is a false claim? Sure, yeah. Just as a basic. Absolutely. When you have a government contract, you eventually want to get paid for the work you're doing for the government, whether you're providing products or services or whatever. It doesn't make sense to have a government contract if you're not going to get paid. In order to get paid, you have to submit an invoice to the government for payment. When you submit that invoice, that is considered a quote-unquote claim. There are other ways to have claims, but that's the primary way that you have a claim. Aha. Okay. I did not know that. Thank you. Sure. So if you submit a claim or an invoice that is somehow incorrect, that's a false claim. If you have an invoice where you've promised to provide 10 people for 40 hours a week in X location, and you provide eight people instead for 40 hours a week at X location, but you bill the government for 10 that's right. a false claim. Right. There are, that's a very basic sure. level, but I mean, the more nuanced one that you see a lot in the services industry is I need five people with this certification and like three of them don't have that certification. Ah, okay. Um, it's, so it's a lot of times it's a lot more nuanced like that where actually the people can do the work. They just don't have the background that was promised maybe in the uh, proposal by, that was offered by the contractor or required by the contract. Right. Okay. So then that, that, thank you for that explanation that helps us understand. So then what is the False Claims Act? So the False Claims Act started actually, it's one of the older statutes we have out there, even though it's pretty relevant today. The False Claims Act came into being during the Civil War. Um, This was a, this was a uh, President Lincoln uh, initiative. Really? Yes. Fascinating. Yeah. And the Union Army, you'd think we were in the middle of a civil war and everyone, all hands would be on deck, but no. The Union Army was receiving sawdust instead of gunpowder. Um, oh. When they ordered gunpowder, there's a lot of sawdust dust mixed in. And they were getting mules that were sick when they were trying to get fresh mules and things like that. So the uh, False Claims Act came to be uh, many years ago in order to make sure that if there is a problem like that, the contractors have some kind, there's some kind of resource against government contractors who are providing um, subpar products or services. Interesting. So it's been around for quite a long time. Uh, it is a very, very powerful tool, tool the government has, because not only do you have 
let's just say, for instance, you've submitted a claim that's false. It is not just the fact that you've submitted the claim that's false. There are penalties associated with that claim, and there are trouble damages associated with the claim. And the case law changes from time to time on this, but let's just let's just say that the trouble damages can reflect what the government lost because of its false claim. So if, okay. it, if you were supposed to deliver gunpowder that was mixed with sawdust, then and you charge the government $5,000 for that, then all of a sudden your penalty is $15,000 because it's trouble damages. And oh. let's just say you submitted that claim over many years, over and over and over again, all of a sudden that adds up very quickly. And then there are penalties associated with that as well, which have changed recently to include higher penalties for contractors. So not only do you have the, the tri- trouble damages, but you also have um, a penalty for every invoice that has been submitted. Uh, it's really, it really can be quite something. So now, as of three years ago, that penalty could be anywhere from $10,781, and I'm taking off the cents. Right. I probably should have just said the cents because by now we would have, right. to $21,562. Wow. So this for can each add, incident, each of incident, a, oh, wow. yeah. So maybe the idea is you do want to do one invoice a year. I don't know, right? <laughs> <laughs> but then you won't get paid for a long time, right? Right. But yeah, it's a very powerful tool the government has. And what's more interesting about this is it's not just the government finds out about something, and it's just the government finding out. There are there's something called a key tam relator, which means that whistleblowers can also find out about whatever wrongdoing there is, uh-huh. and and file a complaint. In, in secret, essentially, with the court. Right. And Department of Justice will evaluate it and decide whether they want to join into your lawsuit or not. If they do, then the company has a, a big problem because you have DOJ essentially suing the company. Right. If not, the relator and their attorney can still pursue the case against the contractor unless DOJ seeks to dismiss it. It is um, really a powerful tool, and it's anybody could be a whistleblower. It could be your employee. It could be a subcontractor employee. Right. As long as it's not public knowledge about what's happening they are a quote-unquote whistleblower right so whistleblowers are always are always in the news so if you watch the news of the day you'll probably see something about a whistleblower because they're right. prevalent around the government and around industry yeah well and of course we have a rather big yes big article and news story these days about a whistleblower but so just for my edification are invoices the only types of things that qualify as a claim if you will or are there other ways in which a government contractor would be submitting a claim if you will so that's the primary way that okay. a government but there are possibly other ways. So okay. anytime that you're asserting something to the government and it's causing the government to pay or sometimes not collect as much money or what have you, that could be considered a claim. I the government's very creative in finding ways to, to sure. call something a claim. They have a lot of incentive to. If you dispute an invoice or dispute what the government is paying you and you file what's called a claim under the Contract Disputes Act with the agency that's separate and apart could be the basis right. for a false claim act claim. And that's why they ask you if it's over a certain amount to certify it. That's if there's a payment dispute, but that could right. be a separate claim potentially. Right. The primary way is through invoices though, but there are other right. nooks and crannies and uh, ways that the government can do that. Is there some landmark case that you know of that was just like a, an excruciating amount of money that a, that a contractor ended up having to pay over false claims? There are landmark cases like that every year. Oh, really? Uh, yes. Every year yeah. people are doing this. So they, the government um, collects billions of dollars a year under the False Claims Act. Wow. And wow. Okay. <laughs> That's either really sad that that many people are making false claims or really sad that the government's just 
tackling different contractors <laughs> yeah, under think, this particular act, but whoa. I think what, what really happens is, and I'll just say last year, the government rec- recovered $2.8 billion. Wow. And I've represented clients in this position where they don't think the government's right, but to fight you know, the full weight of the federal government will cost the contractor millions of dollars, so they'd rather just pay some lesser amount right. to kind of settle the matter, even if you know not admitting liability, we'll settle it, promise you won't put out a press release or something like that, and that allows everyone to move on. So, so that number captures that, that, that segment of the population right. as well. Wow. So just out of curiosity, given that we were talking about last episode, what you're required to do under FAR Part 9, and there's, you know, a mention of ethics and and having clean records. When you settle a false claim like that, does that impact your record with the government? Yes, it can. It can. So it's really interesting. The government has a lot of ways to find out what a contractor has done in the past. So one of those ways is through past performance evaluations, uh, CPARs, Mm -hmm. contract performance assessment that are within the government, so they look that up every time, a con- and contractors get copies of them and can challenge them. Right. But that's a resource that that they have. So undoubtedly things like that are noted in the contractor's past performance record. So the contractor will um, have that follow them. And probably more importantly, if the contractor has found to have violated the False Claims Act, they may not be a contractor anymore sure. because there may be suspension debarment proceedings that will follow closely behind. Right. So perhaps, when you settle a false claims act, you get the agency to agree not to pursue suspension and debarment. Sure. Wow. So there was a recent Supreme Court case where the court held that implied certification could form the basis of a false claims act case. How it, what exactly does that mean? So this is really interesting. And this is going to be a little nuanced, but I think it's worth it, worth the time. Yeah. There are a number of federal circuits courts within the United States. Mm-hmm. So we have the district courts, which where all the trials are and things like that. And then there's the Supreme Court at the top. Right. which everyone knows about. And in the middle, there are circuit courts around the country that hear these intermediary appeals. Okay, They all had different opinions on whether when a contractor submits an invoice and they sign off on the invoice, are they certifying that they're complying with everything that's in their contract? Are they implicitly certifying that, implied certification? Or does that have to be spelled out in the invoice itself? And there were some circuits that said it has to be spelled mm-hmm. out in the invoice. And there were some circuits that said it's implied you're doing everything. Mm. And the Supreme Court took a middle approach in this case called Escobar versus United Health. And in Escobar, what the Supreme Court essentially said is that, yes, there is an implied certification. So now that's the law of the land around in every circuit. Okay. Every district court, but that item that's being certified has to be material. So, for instance, if it's, there's always been a FAR clause that says people won't text while driving. Really? Yes. <laughs> but <laughs> you learn something new every day. I think they took that one out recently. Right. If you are texting while driving, the government's going to still pay your bill. Right. Right. They're not going to not pay your invoice because they found out somebody wasn't complying with that clause. On right. the other hand, a very important clause that's in there, I can. There's almost too many to count where the government says, if you don't do X, maybe it's the cybersecurity clause. Right. We will not pay your bill right. because that's important to us. That's material. That's material. Exactly. Ah, okay. So that's where that material materiality line comes in. 
So with Escobar, that changed a lot where the problem and Justice Breyer in the Supreme Court kind of raised this issue during argument is that it's not a bright line rule. And the government has a little bit of leeway to say, oh, yeah, that's they're all material to us you know, at some right. point. But they have to show that there is a history of it being material, not just that it is. Right. They, they can't just make this ad hoc statement right. that it's material when there's no evidence that it ever has been for them and, sure. and never will be, except in this one case. Right. So it's kind of interesting to see where the line will be. And there's been a bunch of cases that have come out trying to interpret that line. But um, the materiality aspect is one that we'll see play out in the courts over the next 10, 20, 30 years, probably until, mm -hmm. until it gets more clarification, at least from the Supreme Court. So how does that impact cybersecurity compliance considerations? So I do think that the government has made enough hay about cybersecurity compliance where cybersecurity will be material. So whatever clauses are in the contracts will be material. So if a contractor is signing off on an invoice, that means that there will be a problem for the contractor as far as it being a material certification. In fact, just this past spring in May, there was a case that federal district court decided well, it allowed the case to go forward. So what happened was, is that there were, there was a, there's a company, I won't mention the name, they were not cybersecurity compliant. The allegation from the whistleblower is that they knew that they weren't cybersecurity compliant, mm -hmm. but they certified that they were anyway, and essentially filed a whistleblower case. And the company moved to dismiss, saying that's essentially saying that cybersecurity is the DFARS clause is not enough right. for material implied certification. And uh, this, the court disagreed and said, there's enough here for the case to go forward. So it hasn't been finished or finalized right. yet, but at least courts are receptive to this and are taking this argument sure. and letting it run down. And that causes, of course, increased cost to contractors and potential exposure down the right. road. Right. So what can happen if a company is not cybersecurity compliant? With respect to the False Claims Act, you have those penalties we spoke about earlier, which right. are not fun. You also have issues with um, the contract itself, where the DFARS clause allows for the agency to cancel the contract. Mm -hmm. And there, of course, is suspension debarment, which will allow the government to take action against the contractor that they think just doesn't care about cybersecurity compliance because they're not responsible under FAR Part 9. So that's kind of the range of things. Mm -hmm. There's a lot more nuanced right. and granular things in there, but that's the range of things that are, are possible. So just... Um, again, talking about like the little guys that might be coming in as subcontractors, if a prime contractor has been uh, seen or, or convicted or what, I don't know what language you would use in this particular way of a false claim, does that null and void everything that the subcontractors had done under that contract? Are they also impacted by that decision from the government? Not necessarily. So let's just say, for instance, that the government's seeking to collect back the money it paid a contractor because they weren't cybersecurity compliant and the contractor had three or four subcontractors under them, the government will go to the prime contractor and get that money back. It's then up to this prime contractor to get it back from the sub if they think the subcontractor was the cause of that. And if it went to litigation, that would be in the form of a lawsuit. Right. Any other, like any other lawsuit, I mean, it's, you always wanna have a government contracts attorney involved in lawsuits like that if they're not litigating it themselves to begin with, because there's a lot of nuanced terms and FAR clauses sure. and DFARS clauses, but it's a really a commercial contract and it's a commercial lawsuit between the prime and the sub. Sure. So the subcontractor, of course, is at risk of losing that money it collected. But if they if they were not the cause of the cybersecurity issue, right. um, there should be no basis for the prime to do that to the sub. Sure. But well, if the business is uh, officially sort of cut down, so prime contractor does something wrong, makes a false claim, the subcontractor had nothing to do with the false claim, but the government has now said, sorry, 
prime, but you're now done with this contract. We are ceasing and desisting or whatever language they would use. Uh, does the subcontractor, they're just sort of out whatever effort they've put in, or can they actually go to the government and say, look, we were not part of what the issue was on the prime and we need to still be compensated for the work we've done on this contract to the date, or we want to continue doing some of the work or whatnot, or is there just real no? Essentially, if a contract is terminated, if the prime's contract is terminated, the subcontractor has relief against the prime contractor, generally not against the government. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, but they, sh yeah, they should be able to collect that against the prime contractor. The pro this is why it's so important for prime contractors and subcontractors to know each other very well. Sure. It's really a marriage. And they say that 50% of marriages end in divorce. Right. So it's maybe true of primes and sub relationships. Yeah. I'm not sure, but you really want to do your research on who you're going to do business with because you're going to be in bed with them for better or for worse. Right. And sometimes it is for worse. So knowing what their systems are like, and this goes both ways, sure. know, knowing how ethical they are, whether right. they're prepared to take on these new regulations is all very important to ensure that you will get paid for the work that you did. Right. So that leads to the next question and the final question, at least that I have for you in this particular episode, but what is the impact on a contract if a contractor is not cybersecurity compliant? It can really cause the contract to be terminated. That's probably the most the dramatic case, thing. Yeah. yeah. So terminated, there's diff two levels of termination, termination for default and termination for convenience. You never want to be terminated for default because that's the scarlet letter on your uh, shoulder, I guess, or wherever yeah, it happened. Reputation everywhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wherever you put it. Yeah. It doesn't <laughs> matter where. It, it's, it will light up and be very bright and, and the government will avoid you. Yes. Yeah. So that's, that's a possibility. Sure. Uh, termination for convenience is often a way when the government is not really quite getting what they want. They just, but they don't want to fight about it. So they just get out of it and they terminate for convenience. Contractor still gets paid for what they did so far. Okay but it's harder to get paid for lost profits and stuff sure. like that. So uh, those are really the the biggest ways that a, a contract could be impacted if the contractor is not cybersecurity compliant. Right, okay. And t typically when that is happening, when a, when a false claims um, has been brought to their attention, to the government's attention, and the government says, okay, we're gonna begin proceedings to figure out if this is really a false claim, does all work typically stop on a contract at that point? It actually does not because the, ah. it will be kept secret until the government decides what they want to do. So you could be accruing Wowzer. false claim after false claim, just having no idea that there's a whistleblower out there. Wow. Yeah. So it's uh, it's quite a dramatic tool that the government has. So the whistleblower files a complaint in federal court. They send a copy to DOJ. I'm kind of simplifying the process, but sure. you get the idea. DOJ then reviews it to see whether it's something they want to join in. Then they decide if they want to join in or not. And at that point in time, the complaint is unsealed. But up, all up until that point, and it could be a year or more, there's that gap of time where you're accruing maybe possible false claims or wow. adding to the claim yeah. as a contractor. I feel like I would love to do an entire episode on just case history around this. Uh, because I, I, I would imagine that the scary thing about it on all sides is that there's bad actors potentially on all sides. Right. So it's, it, you know, on one side, you do want the government to be very smart with the, the tax dollars that they have to spend on certain things. And you want them to be good stewards of, of their fiduciary responsibility. But on the flip side, for sure, uh, this could being it being such a powerful tool, this could really take down businesses and, and contractors and so on and so forth and really cause some big ripples. Yeah, you hope that the government uses it wisely and uses it on areas of law that are certain. Sure. Where I get frustrated is if it's it's almost like they're testing out a novel uh, area of law or testing out a regulation in a way it hasn't been tested before. Right. That really puts the contractor, I think, in an unfair position of trying to defend something sure. that they shouldn't have to defend. Right. 
Well, this was a very informative session for me, Eric. Thank you so much um, on false claims and other risks of noncompliance. Do you have any parting thoughts for our listening audience on this particular topic? I would just say it'll be interesting to see where the whole cybersecurity versus false claims act dichotomy comes out and how that they impact each other. I think CMMC certification will help lessen the impact of sure. cybersecurity on the false claims act and being cybersecurity compliant. But how that road goes, it'll be very interesting to see. We'll just have to keep an eye on it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this concludes our season number two on FAR Part 9 contracting qualifications and how contractors should handle cybersecurity compliance. I'm excited to know that we will be coming back for season three. And in season three, folks, we're going to be talking about the new FAR and how to navigate the new proposed rule now more stringent for non-DOD and civil contractors. So thank you so much, Eric, for being with us. I look forward to speaking with you next on our season three, episode one. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. The Neo Systems Difference. We specialize in serving organizations of all sizes. In today's fiercely competitive market, is your organization constantly searching for ways to gain the advantage over competitors? Smart organizations are paying more attention to their strategic back office operations. Neosystems offers scalable back office services and solutions to improve your organization with a team of industry experts, industry-leading information technology tools, and an advanced technical infrastructure. From software hosting and security solutions to managed accounting services, Neosystems will custom build solutions and services that are tailored to fit your organization's needs. Check us out on the internet at neosystemscorp.com. That's neosystemscorp.com dot com.